0: it's 3650, Physiology of Exercise Lecture, Thursday, December second, 2010, Altitude, Female Athlete Triad, and Performance. When we finished last time, we were talking about altitude, and we were talking about some of the specific adaptations that occur to, to uh, exposure to altitude. Some of these adaptations will occur if you just go to altitude and, and reside uh, at, at a high altitude level. Okay? These adaptations will occur uh, to a greater extent if you exercise at altitude. Okay? Um, some of these are of substantial interest because they involve adaptations of the cardiovascular system that help you carry more oxygen. So these are of interest particularly to endurance athletes okay? because they want to gain the type of, of physiological Adaptations that help them improve their ability in a um, uh, aerobic sport. Okay, so we have things like um, erythropoiesis and increase in red blood cell synthesis. So we increase our hemoglobin content and we increase our oxygen carrying capacity. Now we talked about this before. What what typically happens with hematocrit with endurance exercise training? Hematocrit. Hematocrit typically goes down because if you engage in endurance exercise training at sea level, you increase the production of more red blood cells, but what do you increase more? Plasma. So hematocrit goes down. When you go to altitude, you get a more aggressive stimulus uh, for the increase in red blood cells, uh, hemoglobin and number of red blood cells, but you don't retain as much plasma volume. So in this case, when you go to altitude, your hematocrit actually goes up. You hemoconcentrate so that every unit of blood will carry more oxygen because the red blood cells and the hemoglobin are more concentrated in that blood. Okay? Does that make sense? You, you stimulate the production of more red blood cells, but, it, but you hemoconcentrate so your hematocrit goes up. All right, so those things help us increase our oxygen carrying capacity so that we can deliver at least the same amount of oxygen to the tissues when we're at altitude uh, compared to when we're at sea level. The whole reason is we're not diffusing as many oxygen molecules in because when we go to altitude, the percentage of oxygen is less, right? No, No. Thank you. The percentage of oxygen is the same. What is different when you go to altitude? The pressure. The barometric pressure and the PO2. There's not as much of a pressure gradient to diffuse oxygen from the lungs into the blood. So that's the difference when you go to altitude. Okay. So now, that, now the question comes up as to whether or not um, training at altitude, you know, and, and then these, this was the acclimatization or uh, uh, adaptation period of time. Now let me jump down to this idea. If you train at altitude, you get some of these cardiovascular adaptations. But does that help your performance? Does, that help a, does training at altitude help an endurance athlete perform better? Yeah. No. Well, it depends. Okay? It depends. First of all, there's no question that if an athlete is going to compete at altitude... Training at altitude helps their performance. Okay? Probably need to be at altitude for at least two weeks for some of these physiological adaptations to start to occur to aid your performance at altitude. Okay, so it is helpful if, you know, if an athlete is running a, a road race in Boulder, Colorado, 7,000 feet, it helps to go out a couple of weeks in advance and train at altitude start these physiological adaptations, uh, gain some more red blood cells, hemoconcentrate, uh, and performance at altitude will improve, okay? Big strategy by a lot of endurance athletes is to move and live in places uh, of high altitude like Boulder, Colorado, or Taos, New Mexico, or Flagstaff, Arizona, live at these higher altitudes and see if their performance then is better when they go to races like the Peachtree Road Race, which is back down closer to sea level. So will training at altitude help your performance at sea level? Well, maybe, maybe not. It depends. You get the cardiovascular adaptations of altitude. But here's one of the problems in training, living and training all the time at altitude. what was the what's the winning time in the Peachtree Road Race? Twenty eight minutes, something like that. So what's that? A five? Uh, what's that? What's that pace per mile? Five twenty, something like that. Way faster. Pardon? Way faster. Way faster. Five ten, five fifteen. I don't know. Say say it's five five minutes. Say it's five minutes and ten seconds per mile. Okay. Um being able to run that pace at altitude is much more difficult. Okay? Because your your you know, if you go to Boulder, Colorado, your VO2 max essentially is reduced by 25% or so. So to be able to train for speed like that is very difficult, for endurance speed like that is very difficult. It's difficult to run a five minute mile at altitude compared to running at sea level. So, Training at altitude helps the physiological adaptations, but if athletes stay and train at altitude all the time, they may lose some of the speed-specific, pace-specific adaptation that they need. Okay? So, a, this, this live high, train low strategy has been developed... For that reason, the, the rationale behind this is, if you can arrange things so that you can do your training at or near sea level, then you don't have the problem of the uh, uh, lack of intensity or lack of speed. Okay? Uh, but if you can live somewhere where you can spend the majority of your time at altitude, then you get the stimulus of the altitude for the physiological benefits. So essentially what uh, somebody could do if you lived in a geographic location. Um, uh, the place I lived in California before I moved here is a good example. Fresno is 200 feet above sea level. Okay, So it's very close to sea level but it's right at the base of the Sierra Nevada mountains. You can get in a car and drive for about 45 minutes and be at 9,000 feet in the mountains. Okay? So the idea for this uh, for an athlete would be to live in a cabin up in the mountains And then when they want to do, you know, three or four times a week when they want to do their fast-paced speed training, they would get in the car and drive down to Fresno or or somewhere nearby or somewhere near sea level, do their training at a lower altitude, and then go back up and reside at a high altitude for the stimulus stimulus of of being at altitude. Because you're training for an hour or two a day, but you're living those other 22 hours a day at altitude. Okay? Okay. So that's just live high, train low. Well, what happens if you... Fresno's not that great of a town. People may not want to live in Fresno. So what can you do if you don't have access to being able to live at a high altitude but easily get to a lower altitude? altitude tent. Okay, there are what are called altitude tents. Uh, These are a variety of different sizes, but it it effectively tries to create a small pressure chamber to mimic the effects of altitude. And what athletes will do is if they live someplace like Atlanta, uh, they will go out and do their training, and then at night, they they basically put this this altitude tent over their bed, and so they sleep in these things, so for the eight or nine hours uh, uh, or ten hours that this athlete may be sleeping, they're exposed to a lower pressure that mimics the effect of altitude. Okay, um, There are more extreme examples of these. Um, uh, Nike put up the money to construct a house in Eugene, Oregon that the entire house is like a pressure chamber. And what they can do is manipulate the pressure in the house to reduce the essentially uh, uh, reduce the barometric pressure inside the house to mimic being at altitude and so the athletes that are on this Nike running team can go out and train and then the time that they spend in the house is like being transported to 10,000 feet in the mountains. okay These are obviously very expensive they're also very restrictive because you've got to confine yourself to the area or space of these tents or these these houses. Um, the, the commercial versions of these altitude tents actually don't, s- the, the research is not very good in uh, how well they mimic actually going and living and training at altitude. Okay, And it's probably because you can't manipulate the pressure that much and people don't like to stay in these small tents for long enough periods of time for it to be effective. Okay, so. So, what athletes do is they tend to either live someplace where they can live high and train low, or they try to arrange their schedule so at certain times of the competitive and training year, they can go and reside at altitude and train for two or three weeks and then uh, move on. Okay? So, clear, uh, all right, so key points as far as performance. Clear benefit for performance at altitude to train at altitude. Okay? To improve your performance at altitude, you need to train at altitude and that clearly helps. Training at altitude gives you the physiological benefits but may or may not translate uh, immediately to improved performance at sea level depending on the athlete's ability to maintain high-quality, fast-paced training. Okay. So sort of the idea if you you know, move to Durango, Colorado and you're living at 8,000 feet uh, and you go out and run a lot, uh, you get lots of good physiological adaptation, but you're, you, you, your running pace is always seven minutes a mile. Okay? So you've got lots of red blood cells and your VO2 max has gone up a lot, but if you're only used to running seven minutes a mile, it's tough to come to Atlanta and run five minutes a mile. Okay does that make sense all right so any, anything about anything else about altitude people have okay so that's altitude let me I've got some time so let'm gonna go ahead and hit the high points on uh, female athlete triad and then we'll wrap it up with uh, performance and uh, finish things up. Well, this is a um, well. There's a lot of debate about this right now. It's it's been termed the female athlete triad in that there are three elements to this phenomenon. Um, there is a position statement coming out by some sports medicine organizations, and there is some debate uh, as to whether or not how closely these three things may actually be linked or whether or not they just seem to be coincidental in their uh, uh, occurrence in a number of female athletes. But basically, the three elements of this triad are disordered eating, um, amenorrhea, disruption of the menstrual cycle, and uh, osteoporosis, or big decreases in bone mineral density, bone mineral content. Um, This originally uh, started to come to people's attention in the late 70s, early 80s, uh, when I started studying female athletes, particularly some endurance athletes, and noticed the amenorrhea. Uh, then started looking at incidences of stress fractures and that sort of thing, which led them to do bone scans and see decreases in bone mineral content, bone mineral density. Um, and then further investigation looked in a, a lot of these athletes present with uh, disordered eating uh, patterns. Um, yeah, it's a... a potentially a substantial problem because for a lot of female athletes it can result directly in a decrease in physical performance and also can create some uh, uh, substantially negative medical issues. Now, what it seems to be related to with a lot of female athletes uh, and and we'll look at some incidences in some different sports in a moment, but it's this pressure with a lot of sports uh, to try to achieve low body weight or uh, uh, very lean, either appearance or um, low body weight or leanness, because it's associated, people think it's associated with improvements in performance, like with endurance sports, um, uh, and so it's, it's especially prevalent in sports that emphasize low body weight uh, or appearance. It it can manifest itself in some men, but much more prevalent in, in female athletes. Uh, it is very high in prevalence in sports that are subjectively scored, like gymnastics, where a certain there's sort of a certain appearance ideal, okay? And there's a certain uh, body shape or image that seems to be preferential, um, and, and an association is made that if you have this particular body type, then that aids your scoring, um, and if you don't, it, it is detrimental to your success in that sport. Um, it's also prevalent in uh, sports, like endurance sports, where low body weight is thought to be uh, helpful, like running, because you've got to transport your body weight over distance, and the thought is, less weight, better performance. Uh, there are also some sports that, that uh, are, uh, again, appearance-oriented, and there seems to be a higher prevalence. Uh, Definitely in sports where there are weight categories, and at least for females, rowing is an example where they've got um, uh, kind of the unlimited class and then also a a lightweight class, so there may be some pressure like in wrestling to make weight um, for certain sports. And then, again, that sort of idealized uh, body image that may be uh, prevalent in certain sports like figure skating or gymnastics. Okay. As an example, um, surveys of athletes in different sports—a uh, uh, a lower percentage, softball, female uh, softball players, as an example—but that's still twenty-five percent uh, of those athletes. Uh, other sports like hockey, running, maybe around fifty uh, percent. And in gymnastics, very high percentage. And they, this this is not the full triad. This is disordered eating patterns, which can which can involve a variety of different levels of of disordered eating. Uh, it could be just an overemphasis on restricting food intake, okay? Because of this idea that I've I've got to lose weight, I've got to be leaner, I've got to weigh less. That there's kind of a overemphasis on really restricting food intake. Uh, it may be more serious. And involve disordered eating patterns like uh, binging on foods and then purging, uh, either through vomiting or, or uh, use of laxatives, um, and maybe more specific defined disorders like anorexia or bulimia. And some of the warning signs uh, anorexia, rapid weight loss, um, avoiding food related activities, you know, people that are that are uh, uh, normally food related activities or communal social types of things and, and you can notice that sometimes people avoid those activities and don't want to be around other people uh, when they're eating. Uh, they may show uh, excessive exercise tendencies, uh, they may have a preoccup- express a preoccupation with food, a preoccupation with uh, the counting calories and um, uh, their individual weight. Uh, even, even in the face of weight loss, they still may express dissatisfaction with their, their weight uh, and body image. Uh, they may wear baggy clothing a- in an attempt to try to disguise their body, um, uh, particularly susceptible to, to um, you know, if you're in a room, for example, where everybody is comfortable temperature-wise, those individuals may, be, may- wear extra clothing because they're cold, their metabolism has been suppressed. Um, Bulimia, noticeable weight loss. Again, uh, in this case, what happens is patterns of strict dieting or food restriction followed by binging uh, on food. Uh, again, excessive concern about weight, criticizing their own body appearance, um, particularly after eating. You know, having a behavior where they where they go uh, into some kind of private environment, like the bathroom or whatever, because they're they're typically um, purging the food that they have, they have eaten um, there's also particularly when people have been bulimic for a long time uh, you can actually see scarring on their knuckles because of their uh, putting their hands down their mouth to cause themselves to throw up and there's also a lot of dental decay because of the acid that's involved in the, the vomit causes their teeth to decay okay so Basically, these disordered eating patterns uh, involve big disruptions in energy intake, which um, they're trying to improve performance or improve their appearance, but in fact, it often has the uh, opposite effect um, impaired health and, and uh, impaired performance. Okay. Um, and essentially what can go along with it is with inadequate energy intake and inadequate carbohydrate intake, you see uh, glycogen levels go down and can become dehydrated, hypoglycemic. Um, in a lot of cases because of the severe dieting um, and lack of energy intake, weight loss may occur but a lot of that weight loss might be uh, muscle mass and some of that weight loss is likely to be also bone mineral, uh, bone loss. Um, metabolic rate goes down and then we see the other things that are associated uh... disruption of the menstrual cycle and uh, loss of bone mineral density Okay. Um, now one of the things that one of the so there's disordered eating one of the things that's also associated with this triad is disruption of the menstrual cycle um, it was really, I'm going to skip over some of this, but uh... it is uh, Tremendously prevalent in certain types of sports or or activities and um, a lot of endurance type sports activities initially thought to be uh, Related mostly to low body weight and low body fat Okay, but more recent studies have really uh, Seen a mechanism that it is more related to um, energy availability Okay, essentially, for long periods of time, not consuming enough energy to support the level of training and activity. And then secondly, the stress that's associated with lots of exercise. Okay, so it seems to be a response to both stress and energy availability where the menstrual cycle is disrupted. Um, Now, one of the things that's associated with this amenorrhea or dysmenorrhea is a, and this is probably one of the first, the first two elements that were associated with this triad, initially the observation of high incidence of amenorrhea or dysmenorrhea in uh, female athletes, secondly with um, big losses in bone mineral density. Okay, so this is what typically happens with bone mineral density as you go through the lifespan. There's obviously the growth age uh, when you're young, and what you're doing is you're adding bone density. Okay, typically people get to their peak bone mineral density somewhere in their 20s or maybe early 30s. Okay, and so you get to this peak bone mineral density. After that period of time, the rest of your life basically is a, is a downward, uh, is a decline in bone mineral density. Okay, as it comes down like this. And in particular, for women, when they reach menopause, there is a significant increase in the loss of bone mineral density. So, postmenopausal women, bone mineral density goes down very rapidly. Um, Appropriate calcium in the diet, appropriate physical activity, particularly weight bearing or strength type activities, uh, helps maintain bone density. Um, there are some drugs that are available you know, that also help maintain bone density, but basically what happens is those things slow the rate of decline. We still all pretty much lose bone mineral density after about age 30 or so. Uh, so first of all, a couple of strategies. One is you want to try to achieve the highest level of bone mineral density that you can because then as you age, uh, you may decline at the same rate, but you don't get to critically low levels and, until much later in life, okay? So that's a, that, that, that is an important strategy to a, achieve high peak levels. Uh, the problem with this triad phenomenon is... At a period, at exactly the period of time when women should be trying to achieve very high peak levels of bone mineral density, some of these athletes have the bone mineral density levels of 60- and 70-year-old postmenopausal women. So they're already starting at very low levels, and it's going to be very difficult to maintain reasonable bone density as they age. Okay, um, And in fact, what happens if you look at... Well, this is... This is healthy bone. This is osteoporotic bone. You can see the big gaps in here. Oh, there's been loss of, of uh, bone tissue. Um, this is bone density. Uh, so you can see the differences between amenorrheic athletes and uh, athletes who have normal menses and sedentary controls. Okay, so um, big association with declines in bone mineral density uh, with amenorrhea. This is incidence of stress fractures. So this is where you get to the point where the bone density starts to then uh, show up as, uh, uh, manifest itself as other problems like uh, fractures in the bone. So we've got three groups. Um, Women that that have 10 to 13 uh, menses a year, so normally cycling. Uh, women that have 6 to 9 a year, and women that have 0 to 5. And basically what happens is you have a significant increase in the incidence or the percentage of people in that group that have stress fractures. Okay, So big association between amenorrhea, dysmenorrhea, low bone density, and also stress fractures. What about, like, say, if you're on that birth control and you don't have your period, like... Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I, 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 don't, I don't think that is... <laughs> I mean, just to be honest with you, I don't know. Because that, that... Well, and, and one, of the, one of the strategies for women uh, is, is to put them... Uh, is to have them start on birth control to more regulate their, their, or their hormonal status, regulate their menstrual cycle, and that seems to help with bone density. And so, I, to be honest with you, I have no idea... Uh, and that's probably a new enough strategy to um, manipulate this, the menstrual cycle so that it occurs fewer times during the year. I, I really have no idea what the effect that will then have on bone density. Um, just thinking about the physiology and what typically happens when there are fewer cycles, it, it would seem like that would not be a good idea. Um I, and I know some women athletes view amenorrhea or fewer cycles during the course of the year as being um, beneficial. Um, but, it, but it actually has some uh, serious health implications. So, um, you know, it's something that, that female athletes should definitely work with a sports physician uh, to address. But that, that's a good question. I, I, I don't know. I don't know. I think it's new enough. It's probably going to be... Um, some period of time before that strategy is pursued enough to see what kind of long-term ramification there might be. Okay. Um, So, like like I said, I started this with this has typically been called the triad because of the the, um, the, the coincidence, I guess, of these three parts that seem to be found. But in more studies and, and surveys of this, There may be, you know, one of the three, two of the three. They're not necessarily linked from a mechanism standpoint, but they seem to be prevalent um, in in a lot of athletes. So there's some interesting position stands coming out that may not refer to it as a triad anymore, implying that these three things always go together. But these are definitely some health concerns that uh, female athletes need to pay attention to. Okay, now what I would like to do is sort of wrap all this up with this um, uh, talking about performance. As we've gone through the semester, and this this would be a good way to help you study for the final, I think. As we've gone through the semester, we've talked about a lot of physiological mechanisms and a lot of physiological systems and how they respond and adapt to exercise. Um, we've also talked about a variety of things, strategies or things that may influence exercise performance. And so what this last section does is to try to pull these all together and, and, and get you to think about uh these various factors not just as muscular factors or cardiovascular but all of these factors that may influence performance of certain types. Uh, I like the way the book does it because what it does is it looks at these in discrete um, uh, it it does it by time or duration of exercise but you could give examples of specific sports. So it does ultra short-term performance So these are, this is seconds, these are are strength and power type activities like short sprints, okay? Then it looks at short-term performance, um, which is in the range of a minute or two. You know, longer sprints, middle distance, some some of the lower middle distance events, that sort of thing. If we look at it as a uh, running type of example... And then, and then it looks at it as more aerobic performances that are shorter in duration, uh, three to 20 minutes it might that might be in that you know five kilometer uh, race type range, uh, you know 1500 meters mile out to three miles or so. the 20 to sixty minutes you know which might be in that 10 kilometer uh, uh, race um, type range, and then the more uh, Prolonged endurance type events as you're getting more into like a marathon type thing, okay, and then recognize that there's lots of things that affect performance. Okay, we've we've talked in here uh, some about you know diet related to carbohydrate related to fluid and water intake. Um, we haven't talked a whole lot about the the nervous system input. Um, We've talked a lot about neuromuscular or the muscular system in terms of you know body type, muscle fiber type, particularly the influence of genetics. Um, we've talked about the environment, altitude, and heat and humidity, how that might affect performance. Um, our bioenergetic systems, our our energy systems, our creatine phosphate, glycolysis, oxidative phosphorylation, um, other factors related to our. Uh, aerobic energy system. Okay, I'm going to skip over that one. Okay, so here's, this is the one that's in the book and I kind of redrew it like this. So basically if you're looking at very short term performance, you know, something in the neighborhood of 10 seconds or shorter, so strength power oriented events, um, we've obviously got to produce a lot of muscular power. And things that are related to being able to, there are other things involved as well that we haven't talked about so much in this class. Um, Skill and technique, you know, uh, motor learning, practice, how to learn the particular skill or activity. Um, You know, these are other classes. Motor learning, psychology of physical activity, sports psychology, those are other classes. We've dealt mostly with this area over here where we've dealt with the ability to produce power, okay? And we know that that's largely related to fiber type. Okay, what what muscle fiber type that you have. It's also related to our energy systems, um, our use of ATP, uh, creatine phosphate, um, training, how training involves uh, how those muscle fiber types will respond and adapt to training, how these energy systems will respond and adapt to training. And what you might also think about is how we might manipulate this system. One way to manipulate it is with training. How else did we manipulate the system to try to improve power or strength? Supplementation, Supplementation issues, as an example, like uh, use of creatine phosphate, uh, creatine loading. Okay, so you want to kind of think through those things that that uh, are related to our ability to produce muscular power, which will then help performance in these types of events. Okay. Think about it in terms and think of examples. You know, 100 meter sprint. Think of it in terms of, oh gosh, if you were presented with maybe four or five different options of what would be the most likely thing to impede performance or help performance in this type of event, what would it be? So, would it be hematocrit? No. No. Would it be... um, uh, let's see, blood doping. No. Would it be um, in this case if it's less than 10 seconds? Would it be bicarbonate or soda loading? No. no. Would it be uh, environmental temperature, heat, humidity? No. no. Not likely. Okay. So, thinking in those sorts of terms of for uh, given an example. <coughs> Uh, a certain type of athletic or sports event or exercise, what would or would not be the most likely things that would influence performance? Okay? Based on what we've talked about in exercise physiology. Okay, then short term performance, you know, this is going from seconds out to, you know, a, a minute or two or three. And so in this case, you know, we've still got, you know, skill, motivation, you know, etc. We're probably going to use creatine phosphate some early on in this type of exercise, but as the duration increases out past 10, 15, 20, 30 seconds, uh, glycolysis is probably going to be our more predominant energy system. And what went along with using glycolysis at a high rate? Acidity or pH going down. and Did that affect fatigue in the muscle? (laughs) Yeah. Um, So, once again, training, how that impacts these factors. And then also buffers, either the natural buffers that we have or how we manipulated the buffering system with bicarbonate loading to try to help performance. Okay. Uh, I guess I didn't redraw these, so I'll have to use the book's version. All right, so now we get out to events that are in duration. The longer in duration you go, the more heavily you're going to rely on our aerobic energy system or oxidative phosphorylation. When these events are pretty short, the main factor is having a high VO2 max. Okay, high VO2 max. And we know that that's impacted by having a high cardiac output. Uh, does our maximal, our maximal heart rate affect this but there's not much we can do about that, okay? Um, Having a high stroke volume will help us have a high cardiac output and that's influenced both by genetics and also by the type of training that we do. Can you increase your maximal stroke volume? Yes, Yes. okay? The kind of uh, overload that the heart gets with aerobic type exercise is volume overload makes the left ventricle get bigger can pump more blood with each beat, maximal stroke volume goes up. Okay. This is shown in a little different way than we've looked at it, but this is basically AVO2 difference. Okay. So this is the arterial side. How much oxygen can we carry? Uh, um, some of that's based on the hemoglobin concentration. Okay, and think about factors that may influence that. You donate blood to Red Cross, your hemoglobin concentration goes down, that impacts your ability to carry oxygen, which might impact VO2 max. You blood dope, you increase hemoglobin concentration, you increase your oxygen carrying capacity, and that may impact performance. Okay? This is fraction of inspired oxygen, so that's the, that percentage of oxygen uh, in the air that you breathe, okay? So, uh, in most instances, in most places, that fraction or percentage is not going to change, um, but that might be a factor that you would manipulate when you go to altitude. So if you go to altitude, you might breathe from supplemental oxygen to increase that percentage of inspired oxygen to help your performance, okay? Uh, PO2 is one that was uh, that went down when we went to altitude, okay? Because the barometric pressure goes down, PO2 goes down. That's hindered when you go to altitude, so that can cause a decline in VO2 max and a decline in performance. Okay. Then on the extraction side over here, the venous side, that's largely driven by muscle fiber type. Okay what muscle fiber types are more likely to be able to take oxygen out of the blood and use it in oxidative phosphorylation? Slow twitch. twitch. Got lots of capillaries, lots of myoglobin, lots of big mitochondria, lots lots of oxidative enzymes, and those things all respond to training. Okay? Now, a couple subtle differences as as the... uh, aerobic exercise duration, or the distance of the event, if you will, gets a little bit longer. The, this all looks pretty much the same with a couple of subtle differences. Okay? When we go out further in distance, the duration is long enough now that we can't really run at our VO2 max for that long of a period of time. So it helps us to be able to run at a high percentage of our VO2 max. So that's, that's what we get down here. So here's VO2 max... You gotta be able to run at a high percentage of your VO2 max. Okay? That's related to that lactate threshold and that ventilation threshold that we talked about. Okay. Um, the duration is also long enough that performance may be adversely impacted by either dehydration or by hyperthermia. Okay, body temperature getting too high, and/or plasma volume getting too low because of sweating uh, dehydration. Okay? Now running economy over here is important and this is really related to being able to maintain this high percentage of your VO2 max. Uh, it's an ability to run at a given pace or perform at a given pace without um, uh, consuming as much energy as somebody else. It's being more efficient or economical. Okay. And then when we take this out to the longer distances, this one's all still pretty much the same, except now you're going long enough that carbohydrate stores make a difference. Okay, liver and muscle glycogen stores, which can be affected by your diet before you start the exercise, and it can also be affected by what you consume during the exercise. Okay, so this is that whole... uh, Carbohydrate manipulation lecture, where we looked at muscle glycogen or carbohydrate loading, the pre-event meal, okay, getting our onboard carbohydrate stores as high as possible. Uh, and then if the event is long enough, you're still probably going to have to take in some carbohydrate, one of the gel products, a sports drink, eat a banana, power bar, something like that, during the event to keep carbohydrate delivery high. OK? And we still have, of course, heat load, dehydration, et cetera. All right, so think about these different exercise types or durations or time periods and just think through them and think what would most likely be the things that influence performance for those types of events. Okay? All right. Here into the lesson. Questions. You you will okay tomorrow. You've got lab and you will have access to both your exams. Okay, so we, you will have the, your second exam back tomorrow. So you have a chance to look over those. Look at the look at the questions. See which ones you missed or or whatever. Re- review those. Um, and then again, the final exam in here. Uh, uh, pardon. Ten forty-five. Yep. It's a different time, so make sure you, you got the correct time. It's so what we're Tuesday the fourteenth at um, ten forty-five. Ten forty-five. Um, get a couple of quick things about the final. Make sure you bring a pencil. I will provide you a computer score sheet. Um, I am around all next week. If you have questions or whatever, as you're, I know all week diligently studying for this final exam. So when you have questions, come by and see me, Richard.